Thank you, Brian. Thank you, worship team. Thank you, church, for singing. Um, I think of Ephesians 5, where those who are filled with the Spirit sing songs and hymns uh, with one heart to God and to one another. Um, and you encourage one another when you sing loudly, and that also brings great glory to our Savior. Well, the reading of His Word also brings glory to our Savior, and so we're going to come to Romans chapter 16. We're in the last chapter of this great epistle. We're going to look at the first 16 verses this morning, so I invite you to open up your copy of God's Word and, and follow along with me as I begin reading in verse 1. Paul writes to the church in Rome, and he says, I commend to you you, our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sincrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many, and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who, who risk their necks for my life. To whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epania, Epen, Epeti, excuse me, Epenetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampiolatus and my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. My beloved Sakis. Greet Apelles, who is proved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those who are in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Trophina and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Pelagon, Hermes, Patrobos, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philogus, Julia, Nursus, and his sister, and, Apl uh, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss, all the churches of Christ greet you. Made it through. It's passages like these that we're tempted to quickly skip over, right? Or skip over them because they're a list of those names, right? Those names that are, as I have so proven, are difficult to pronounce. They, they don't roll off our tongue quite as well. They, they put letters where we don't like letters, and uh, it messes us up. Um, and there's little, beyond that, just the fact that it's difficult to read, uh, there's little, uh, at least instruction, comparatively speaking, beyond the repeated call to greet these various individuals. So consequently, we usually breeze over these types of scriptures, don't we? If we're on a, a Bible reading plan, you might say, yes, this one's easy. Greet, 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 greet. Yeah, I got it. And we breeze over thinking that such effort was all that was required to gain what little God wanted to teach us. 
In fact, I actually enjoy these types of passages because I, I come to them, at least initially, wondering what in the world are you going to have to say to us through this passage? In fact, I got some texts. Different people had come up to me at various times and saying, what are you going to do? You're only covering the first 16? Like, what are you going to say? And I said, I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to say. I get into it on Monday. And we'll find out. And that's, that's part of the, the journey of Bible study uh, and, and part of the, the fruit of the labor. And so I would argue that it's precisely texts like these that remind us, and, and this isn't just for me as a preacher, but this is for you as one who's been entrusted with the Scriptures as well. It's a reminder that we need to slow down. And we got to listen carefully when we read the Scripture. We must have ears to hear. We must have eyes to see what at first may not be readily apparent to ourselves in our weak flesh. See, the Scriptures only yield their fruits to those willing to humble themselves in meditation upon God's precepts. To those who seek the Lord with their whole heart, who fix their eyes upon all His ways, it's only those who will declare out with the psalmist, in the way of your testimonies I delight as much as all riches. In your statutes they have been my song. Oh, how I love your law. It is the meditation of all the day. How sweet are your words to my taste. Sweeter than honey they are to my mouth. So church family, it's my prayer that as God's precious children, we would find rest and enjoyment in his word this morning. A word that may, on the surface, not look to yield much to us. It's my prayer that as we maybe pause and listen and think about these names and think about how Paul describes them, who, who is this church? One of the things I, I think will be I think beneficial if we listen is that oftentimes I think we read the stories of Scripture and we think of them as just that, stories. And they're so distant to us because we can't maybe... Uh, see ourselves as the Apostle Paul. But it's lists like these that remind us that there was a real church in Rome with real people. People just like gathered here this morning, just with different names. But as we read them, Paul concludes this letter with a commendation, a greeting to 27 individuals who, who certainly represent groups of other individuals in this church, but we see 27 individuals, all but one are members of the church in Rome. And Paul's purpose in this lengthy greeting, it's actually the longest of all his letters, is, is likely twofold. He's got a twofold purpose. First, to express his deep love and appreciation for the church which he longs to visit. We, we looked at that last week. He has many beloved friends, as we're going to see, many partners in the ministry that he has met who are now in Rome. But he also wants to communicate that his gospel, the gospel which he's been entrusted with, the gospel that he is preaching is the same gospel they have come to know and believe. And so for this reason, he hopes all the more as they share in the one faith, one Lord, one baptism, 
that they would be all the more eager to support him in his mission efforts to Spain. So as we keep this twofold purpose in mind and consider Paul's greeting to the church in Rome, we're presented with a, what I think is a beautiful snapshot, a beautiful portrait of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we listen carefully, brothers and sisters, I, I pray, this has been my prayer for us, that the Lord would stimulate us to have a greater appreciation for, a greater perspective of, and a greater service to His church. And so to that end, I want us to consider three things this morning. The makeup of the church, the ministry of the church, and the affection of the church. If you didn't catch those, we'll go through them one by one. Here's the first one. The makeup of the church. What is this church made up of? What, uh, what, what is kind of the demographic? What is the, uh, the snapshot, if you will? What's the picture of this church? Well, well, first of all, we learn from these verses, and we're going to look at this, by the way, thematically. We're not going through them verse by verse, line by line. I'm going to pick out themes that jumped out and kind of put it as, uh, as a picture, if you will. But as we consider these verses as a whole, we see that the church of Rome is actually made up of five churches. So that might be new to you. You think of, oh, you know, there's just one congregation. No, actually, Paul's writing to five congregations. And we see this that in the fact that he greets the various churches that meet in various houses. We see one is met with Prisca and Aquila. You might know Prisca as better as Priscilla. Well, he says there's a church that meets in their house. This is what he's getting after in verses 10 and 11 when he, he, he greets various households of Aristobulus and the household of Narcissus. He also lists various names in verse 14. Maybe these are leaders in the church. And he says the believers who belong to them. And he does something similar again in verse 16 where he says they greet the saints that gather with them. And out of that, there's five groups. And likely he's writing, saying, greet these groups because he's aware of the various congregations in the area and maybe they don't know each other. And that's part of the unity he's parting to, trying to bring. Some of the, maybe the, the issues of Romans 14 and 15 are, are maybe why some are in certain groups and some are in others. And he's trying to collectively see themselves as a, as a unity, a body. Well, certainly we're early in the development of the church. It's AD 57 that Paul's writing this letter. But we see something like what we have in our own city, don't we? Various churches sporadically represented throughout the various regions of what we call Kentuckiana or Southern Indiana. So he's writing to the churches. And these churches, as you see, we're, we're, we're meeting in various households. Now, something of a side note. Uh, some today view this as how the church should be. This is what the church, pure and authentic, looks like. They don't have buildings. They meet in homes. And, and there's whole movements. In fact, I saw a, a website this morning looking up something that was, you know, arguing that, you know, this is the way, this is what's wrong with the church today. We're not meeting in houses. And they, they take passages like this and make much to do of them. Well, let me say there's nothing wrong with having a church in a house. Nothing wrong, clearly. Paul's greeting several house churches. But it may be helpful to understand, maybe, maybe you're reading and maybe persuaded by some of these things. 
it's helpful to understand that they didn't meet in house churches as some strategic mission. That's kind of the lingo today. We're really going to reach people. We got to do what they did in Acts in the early church, meet in houses. That wasn't what they were doing. That wasn't their mission. That wasn't their strategy. You know why they were meeting in houses? Well, by and large, most of these believers came out of the synagogues. You know what synagogues were? Houses of worship. Buildings that were built. And even the Greeks were coming out of this because, as Acts calls them, many of these were God-fearers. And so when, when the apostles would come into town, they would start at the house of worship to worship that day. And it was, happened to be the synagogue is what they call them. We just call them churches. And they show up and they would preach. We, uh, we read that passage in Acts 28 where Paul arrives. And what happens? There's a great division in the synagogue. And some believe. Some believe. What happens to the some? Well, you're no longer welcome here. And you've got to go somewhere. In fact, if you'll read Acts chapter 18, which... I'll reference several times today. There was a house in Acts 18 in the city of Corinth where someone had a house next to the synagogue, probably a member of the synagogue. We're no longer there. You can come to our house. And that was the, that was the reason. They were kicked out. They were forced to meet in homes. But they were forced to meet in homes. And God's sovereignty and wisdom, members who were of substantial meat had houses that were large enough for them to gather we read in the opening chapters of Acts that there, there's a room with a gathering of 120. That's a pretty big house. I think we begin to parse terms when we start thinking, well, church buildings aren't holy, but big houses are. It, it becomes a legalism in of itself. Furthermore, most people don't realize that the way that the New Testament instructs us to order the church, and usually the house church movements, out of a kind of protest. No institutions. No structure. The early church had no structure. We don't want to have structure. Well, that's not really true at all. There was structure. In fact, the structure that we receive in the New Testament is modeled after the synagogue structure. You know why we have elders? Because there were elders in the synagogues. They did in the house church because they didn't have a building anymore what they used to do when they were worshiping under the old covenant. And they just brought it over. And so that's what's going on here. The, the, the charges to publicly read Scripture. That's what they did in the synagogue. The teaching model of opening up Scripture just like we do and explaining it. Well, that's exactly what they did in the synagogue. They were just doing what they did in institutionalized, organized worship. They were just forced to go to the houses because they were persecuted. We'll find, actually, early on in the church, by the third century, we begin to find congregations of worship which are dedicated to Christianity. They're distinct from the synagogue. Believers built churches, what we would think of as dedicated houses of worship. On that note, it is instructive, though, for us to think that sometimes I think we have the opposite problem. And I think this is where some of those reactions come from. We become so dependent that you must have all these things to have a church. Well, you don't. You know what all you need? Are people. And the preached word and the proper administration of the ordinances, baptism, Lord's Supper. And that's a church. That's a church. That's my side note. 
Not only was the church in Rome, now think big C, the church in Rome made up of five little churches, little C, but consider the various kinds of individuals which belong to these churches. We, we get a clue by looking at, at these names and, and looking at how he pairs them. Well, we see there are several couples. There were husbands and wives. We already mentioned Priscilla and Aquila. We're going to return to them in a moment. But look in verse 7. There's Andronicus and Junia. And then verse 15, Philogos and Julia. But not all were married. We see a mother and a son. Verse 13, Rufus and his mother. It just, it's interesting. Rufus and his mother. It's quite possible, this is interesting, that Rufus is the son of Simon of Cyrene. Do you remember who Simon of Cyrene is? How about our children's Sunday school teachers do? Simon of Cyrene is the one whom the soldiers called, plucked out of the crowd when Jesus was carrying the cross and said, bear the cross for him, bear the beam. Well, how do we know that? Well, Mark's gospel is the only one that makes mention of it. And Mark's ministry was centered in Rome under the preaching ministry of Peter. And he wrote that gospel. And in Mark chapter 15, verse 21, he makes a side comment. He says, Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Probably because he's writing in Rome and he's saying, this is what your dad did. Or as we know, Rufus and Alexander, it was their dad who bore this beam. Perhaps Simon and his son Alexander have passed away, and that's why they're not mentioned here. We don't know. Verse 15, we read of a, I think this is sweet, a brother and a sister. Where's mom and dad? A brother and a sister, Nereus and his sister, he says. Then we see two sisters in verse 12. Perhaps they were twins because their names are, are very similar, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Two sisters, no mention of their parents. Then you, you have the whole households, which were probably made up not only of physical descendants, but also the slaves owned by that family. And this is particularly what I think he's talking about in verses 10 and 11. He mentions the household of Aristobulus and that of Narcissus. Aristobulus is likely the grandson of Herod. You think of Herod, who's he's not a good guy in the Bible. He's a, he's a, he's a, a pretty well and affluent individual. And they would have massive households, people under their names and, and their acquired possessions and the layers of servants and workers and, and even their family members. And so when he says the household of Aristobulus, he's not suggesting Aristobulus himself is a Christian. He's talking about their household, which is a prominent name, which might have been news to some. There are believers among his household. You have the same thing. He, he makes it more explicit in verse 11 with Narcissus. He says explicitly, greet those in the Lord who are of that household. Greet those in the Lord. Narcissus was a prominent freedman under the rule of Claudius. Claudius was the emperor of Rome from about 41 to 54 AD. His name is Fitting narcissist because he was known for his extravagant living and self-indulgence. Uh, apparently, once Claudius's reign ended and Nero took over, Nero didn't like the guy. He had him killed. But nevertheless, there, even with this vile individual, extravagant narcissist, there's believers in his household. Paul says something very similar at the end of Philippians. You should go and read it. Greet those of the household of Caesar. 
He's not saying Caesar, the emperor, is a Christian. He's saying there are Christians in his household. That should encourage us, brothers. There are things that the Lord is doing that we're unaware of. Amongst maybe families that we would not even think there would be believers there. Yet he, he lists these people. Why is this significant? Because you would have had slaves and members of the Roman Empire who have come to know Christ. And so while there are those, there, you know, you have these people who have come to know Christ, they're slaves, maybe their own family members, people of different economic statuses. But the irony was that the heads of these households themselves did not know the Lord. Now just imagine for a moment what these households might have been like. Where a group of believers would worship in their quarters every Lord's Day. Certainly, Aristobulus and Narcissus would have heard them sing, don't you think? What's going on over there? Oh, it's, you know, the, all those people that had gotten, they started becoming Jews and they're worshiping this Christus. Worshiping him. Oh, okay. They began to witness their love for one another and, and possibly and probably some of them even shared the good news with them. Perhaps members of their own flesh and blood would go and join them. They would go to maybe to the slave quarters, or, or maybe they invited the slaves up to their quarters. I, I don't know how it worked, but certainly it would have been raising some eyebrows. What are you doing with these people? They're our people. They're my brothers and sisters in Christ. But oh, the irony, while Aristobulus and Narcissus lived in the comfort as freedmen with all their contemporary pleasures of the day, it was their servants who were truly royalty and heirs of the kingdom that would never pass away. This is what was going on. And, and maybe you're here Sunday after Sunday. I don't know. And you come, not because you yourself are a believer, but because you throw those around you are believers. Maybe it's your, your parents. You come just because your mom and dad believe. Maybe you come with your spouse, but you yourself don't believe. Maybe you're the only one. Your siblings believe, but you don't. And, and you're just coming because you have to. Or, or maybe you're just trying to appease them. Either way, you've seen. You've been here. You've watched their involvement. You, you've, you've seen their commitment to Christ. You've heard the gospel. You've seen it sung. You've, you've heard the word read. But you yourself have not tasted to see the goodness of the Lord. You're like Aristobulus and Narcissus. So close in proximity, yet so far away. Maybe perhaps right now you have no idea that I'm even talking to you because you're so self-absorbed. And you're just looking down and you have no idea. You don't realize the grace of God was just offered to you. You read these greetings here. These are beloved greetings, as we're going to see. And, and they're promises and truths that not only apply to those believers, but characterize the believers here in this very church and written to people just like your family, but they're not written to you. Because you have not given your heart to Him. How sad and dreadful that day will be if you continue in your unbelief. You will be in a wretched state under the full wrath and fury of your God while your believing family is safe in His presence. You will remember Sundays like these 
where the gospel was extended to you, grace was extended to you, where you heard and you knew I should believe, but you chose rather the fleeting pleasures of sin rather than to be counted among the people of God. And oh, how you may consider and think back to that day, those days, those numerous opportunities that the gospel was extended to you. Maybe people even meet in your own home, but you just sit in your bedroom. Or you don't come up, or you make sure you're not there. And yet, that was where life was. And you, rather, committed spiritual suicide. What we see in this listing of believers are men and women. Ten of these names are women of the twenty-seven. We have slaves and free, Jew and Gentile. What we see pictured in this listing is in the names is the power of the gospel to save all who will believe. And if you're here today and you do not believe, it doesn't matter if you've been raised in a Christian home or not. It doesn't matter what your economic status is. It doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. This gospel is life-giving to all who believe. That all your guilt and shame can be washed away. And though your body may perish, you will live forevermore and you will have the hope of a resurrection. Well, here we not only see the beauty, beautiful makeup of the church, of the redeemed, but we also see the intentional ministry of the church. The intentional ministry. And what I'd like to emphasize here first is what, I, what we see here is our risk takers. Risk takers. Paul specifically identifies Priscilla and Aquila as such in verses 3 and 5. I, I love that. Notice he says, who risk their next, verse 4, for my life. They were certainly risk takers. He says that they are his fellow workers, his co-laborers. We're first introduced to uh, this extraordinary couple in Acts chapter 18 when Paul arrives in Corinth. And so what's interesting is they're right now in Rome, but Paul first meets them in Corinth. Why does he meet them in Corinth? Well, Paul goes there. And what we read in Acts chapter 18 is that they had been forced to leave Rome because of the edict of Claudius. That's the emperor I mentioned earlier. Claudius made all the Jews be evicted out of Rome because of civil disturbance that was coming. And what we read and the evidence that we have is it was over a certain Christus that they were reviling over. And scholars believe that either this is a Latin a spelling or just a misspelling of Christ. And what do we know? Every time that the gospel is preached in these synagogues, it would cause an uproar. Some would believe, but if we know through the pattern of Paul, he usually came out of there with quite a few beatings. And they would go to the officials. Well, Claudius wanted nothing of it, and he just says... He couldn't distinguish the groups, and he just said, all right, the problem clearly is what's going on in these synagogues. Let's get these people out of here. And so he just made an edict. You're out. I'm sure it created much need for those who had believed. Well, this couple appears to be well off because they're, they have a tent-making business, which appears to have some influence around the whole Roman Empire. They're now in Corinth. Uh, we'll read elsewhere that, that they go from Corinth with Paul to Ephesus and they host a church there. 
So they got house churches in Corinth and Ephesus and in Rome. They, they, they apparently had multiple houses, which I think is also instructional. There's also these types of things that say, well, if you're rich, you don't know the people, you know, you don't know the Lord. Well, clearly these people have got three different homes that we know of. But yet they're using them for the kingdom. They're helping Paul. So Paul says they helped him in Corinth. He, we know that he helped them in Ephesus. And now they're back in Rome hosting one of these churches. And he says, greet them. He says of them that they risk their necks for my life. Man, I'd like to know that story. He doesn't tell us. It's, it's as if, hey, go greet them. Maybe he's teasing them a little bit. You, you want to go meet this couple. They risk their life for me. And probably, I mean, we don't know, but kind of speculative, is they left Corinth and went with Paul to Ephesus. And if you go to Acts chapter 19, you read what happened to Ephesus. Man, it blows up. It goes crazy. One of the, the biggest riots occur because an idol maker stirs up trouble because Paul has basically led one of his prostitute women uh, to Christ, and she was a moneymaker for him. And people were burning all their books of sorcery and their idols. They were killing his business. And so he stirs up a riot. That's where the temple Artemis was located. And they begin screaming, Artemis is great, Artemis is great, all around. We read that some of the disciples per, prohibited Paul from going into the crowds. He was wanting to go and kind of clear things up. Maybe that was a Priscilla and Aquila. I don't, I don't know. Maybe they used some of their influence and clout in the city because what we find is when the, the official comes, he calms the people down. He says they've done nothing of no harm, and they let Paul leave. First Corinthians, Paul, though, says that he was rescued from the, the mouths of the beast. Probably the gladiatorial arena. Was that, was that Priscilla and Aquila who used some means? Maybe they have some money. Maybe they were able to pay someone and say, hey, we'll pay his bond. We'll get him out of here. I don't know. But they were willing to die for Paul. They were willing to die with him. They were willing to sacrifice whatever they had for the sake of the mission. And Paul says in verse 4, of whom I not only I give thanks, but all the churches and the Gentiles give thanks to them. Why would all the churches and the Gentiles give thanks to them? Because they helped support the ministry that took the gospel to them where it had not been named, where Christ had not been named. Man, I'd love to meet those people. We'll, we'll, in heaven, we'll get to talk to them and find out what happened. How did you risk your life? We see something similar. We don't know as much about this couple in verse 7. Andronicus and Junia. Paul says they're fellow Jews, but also he says they're fellow prisoners. We don't know if they had been imprisoned uh, before or if maybe that's where Paul met them, in prison. But nevertheless, they certainly show themselves to be risk takers, don't you think? Willing to sacrifice for the gospel. And in so much so that Paul says that they are renowned, they are well-known ministers. Well, I'd be remiss if I didn't also bring up Phoebe. Phoebe is a, a lovely lady, and, and Paul likely met Phoebe while he was in Corinth. Corinth is where Paul's writing this letter, by the way. Well, Phoebe's from the city of Sincrea, which is a port city just nearby Corinth. 
Maybe a suburb is what, what we might think. But Paul says of her that she was a servant of the church in Sincrea. What's interesting here is that word which is used of servant is also translated elsewhere as deacon. In fact, if you have an NIV, I think that's how NIV translates it. She was a deacon of the church in Sincrea. Now, some of you are getting a little nervous. You're like, what? I don't think this actually contradicts anything in Scripture. I don't think it contradicts even 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13. I'm not going to go make a big point out of that because we're, we're not quite sure. What, what does Paul mean here? That, that word diakonos, servant, deacon, it's actually used quite fluidly throughout the New Testament. Sometimes Paul says, I'm a diakonos of Christ Jesus. Well, he wasn't a deacon. He was a, an apostle. He, was a, he, he didn't bear that official capacity. Sometimes he uses it just of, of servants uh, 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 in general and not necessarily recognize them as a deacon of such. Nevertheless, what we can say is that she was trustworthy. She was a faithful servant of a church. She's bearing the name of that church. She's coming as a representative of a church. So she's clearly in some leadership capacity. So much so that Paul actually entrusts her to be the carrier of this letter. That's why he says, greet her. She's the one bearing this letter. And some suggest that as a letter carrier, she would have been the one to, to stand up and have actually read it to the congregation. And so Paul has a high view of women, and he, in, in, in particular here, of, of Phoebe. He says that she has been a, a, a patron of many, and of, my, of me myself. In other words, she's also of well means. She's, she's supported the ministry. She's invested in the ministry. Not just Paul, but many others of the church she has helped. And so what we see of her is that she too was a risk taker. Being willing to part with her earthly possessions to invest in a kingdom that could not be shaken. If we continue to examine this list, we see Paul speak of hard workers and hard laborers. We think of Mary in verse 6. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. We see Urbanus in verse 9, the sisters of Tryphena and Tryphosis. They, they are all mentioned to be hard workers, laborers. What's interesting is that every time, almost every time that Paul mentions hard workers, hard laborers in his letters, he's talking specifically about individuals who have borne the labor of ministering the gospel in some way, particularly in preaching and teaching and evangelizing. And so what we're, we're seeing different groups of people who are, have been a part, or at least he knows of them and, and their work. He, he says of, in the letter, uh, both the beginning and the end, the whole world has heard of your church. You've got evangelists among you. Those sisters, Mary, Urbanus, they've heard of your hard labor, your hard work in the ministry. I think we often envision the mission efforts of the early churches being accomplished by the apostles and maybe just a select few that came alongside them. But what we're seeing is that, no, the mission of the church was moving at a far more collective level. That many were involved, many were risk takers, many were hard laborers. And this work was going on, Paul gets there, and the church has already been planted before he gets there. 
Probably this came from the preaching ministry of Peter, but we're not sure. But what we see here is that the ministry of the church is a collective effort, brothers and sisters. One in which even the apostles could not do on their own. That's why Paul's writing this letter. I can't do it on my own. I need your help. And this is also the case for us. The ministry of this church is a collective effort. Not one of you, or, or, or not one um, of your pastors could do this on their own. Or collectively. Amongst just the pastors. Or, or even if we just looked at the, at the leaders of deacons and team leaders. No, we, we need everyone. And God has, in His sovereignty, gifted each of you and supplied each of you with various assets, abilities, even your season of life to meet particular needs of this church and the mission of this church. And so the idea of of a Christianity where you show up on Sunday morning, sit in the chair, and you check out when we say amen is just not what we see here. No, we see people laboring, investing in the kingdom, a kingdom that will not be shaken, where moth and rust will not destroy, where a thief cannot break in and steal. We're investing in eternity. So I want to appeal to you, church. We have many hard laborers here. I'd be, we'd be here all day. If I were to go through and begin to recount all the various couples, singles, uh, elderly, moms and sons, sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, and we began to talk about how this church has come about because of the labors of these saints. Because there are some of you who sit here Sunday after Sunday, and you'll get out as quickly as possible, and you'll come back next Sunday as late as possible. And I just want you to know that has nothing to do with Christianity. That's not what the church is. It's a family of laborers, of risk takers, taking this gospel, worshiping, and being propelled into the community, propelled and meeting the the needs of the saints. Do you know the people? Are you a member here at this church and you don't know anybody? That's because you're not investing. You don't see the church as your family. You don't see them as your co-laborers in the gospel. So what I would ask is, what are you living for? Are you living for that which will fade away? Are you running a race for a perishable wreath? Because the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, His saints are running a race for an imperishable wreath. Here we've begun to catch a glimpse of this church, haven't we? We've begun to see the makeup and their ministry, but we also understand the affection of this church. Seventeen times Paul exhorts the church in Rome to greet one another. 17 times. Only once does he change it. That's when he says, receive Phoebe. That's because she's not there yet. But it's a similar word, welcome. It's the same word actually used uh, at the end of of 15.6. Therefore, welcome one another. As Christ welcomed you. What Paul's exhorting them to do is live out the truth of the unity that they have in Christ. In other words, our unity in Christ around the gospel by which we are gathered here as one is to be tangibly expressed toward one another. To be tangibly tangibly expressed. It's not something merely that we affirm. Yes, we're one in Christ. It's something we do. In fact, Doug Williams will love this. Greet one another with a holy kiss. And only those of you who know the family well enough know 
Doug Williams off wants to greet you with all the gifts. All right. Well, this could be in our, our day aside hug. Uh, I mean, this is culturally conditioned, but what, you, what we see here is he's greet one another with a holy kiss. There's affection. There, there is some sense of interaction. It's not just words. He calls them to genuine affection. In the case of Phoebe, we see that we should receive fellow believers and meet whatever needs that they have, as he says, in a way worthy of the saints. Do you realize that she's a saint? That we are saints? That all who are in Christ are, are saints? And he says, you need to receive her Meet her needs as a way worthy of saints. He says, she has helped me. She's been the patron of many, so help her. That's kind of the idea that he's getting after. Not only that, but we're to give thanks for one another. He gives thanks for Priscilla and Aquila. He gives thanks to others throughout this passage. Nor do I want to press us to think about, can we tangibly give thanks to one another? Because Paul gives specific items why he's thankful. It's not just, oh, I'm thankful for the church, and it's just kind of surface level. No, there's some, there's some teeth to that, some warmth to that, some specificity to that. Do you know your brothers and sisters in this church well enough? You can say, I thank God for you because. Because of this, because of that. I've seen God work in this way. Paul models this intimate affection for the church in the way he commends fellow brothers and sisters to one another. He commends them as family. Look again in verse 1. This is really subtle, but it struck out to me. I commend to you our sister, Phoebe. Our sister. They don't know Phoebe yet. But he tells them she's your sister. Receive her as your sister. He wants them to see her as she truly is in Christ with them. Receive her as you would your sister. One of the more encouraging things that I see happen in the church is when I notice members of this church move from you language to we language. You know what I mean by that? Usually it comes this way. Why do you guys do X, Y, or Z? Why do you, 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 and they're talking about the church? And sometimes, depending on how I feel, I might say, you mean we? But based on their language, I can clearly see what they think about the church. But what is so sweet is when I see those who used to say, you guys, you all, why do you begin to say, this is why we? This is us. This is our and they've changed. They now see this as their family. And you can tell just by that little pronoun. Second person plural or first person plural. And Paul says she's your sister, our sister. Consider these other adjectives that Paul employs. Sometimes he speaks of a brother or sister as beloved. You see that in verses 5, 8, 9, and 12. He calls them in the Lord. He greets them be in the Lord. These are in the Lord or in Christ. I mean, he does that numerous times. Twice he refers to people as saints. Saints isn't some special designation. I mean, it is special, but it's not unique among the, the, 
people of God. It, it is the title for the people of God. Greet the saints. It means greet the church, greet the believers. That's a title that each true believer bears as God's holy ones, those of us who have been washed of our sins and made clean. We're saints. Once he speaks of, of an individual, verse 10, as being approved. That's a, a peles. He was approved in Christ. That word approved could also be translated genuine or, or proven genuine. That word's used in chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. I'm going to read this, where Paul says, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and Endurance produces character, same word, approved, genuine, a genuineness. And character or genuineness produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. I don't know, maybe, maybe Paul knows something specific about Epilus, and he knows maybe he's endured great trial and tribulation, and he is one who has endured much, and he has shown his character. And the Lord has kept him, and he has been shown genuine, approved in the Lord. That's what that, that, that idea says, and which tells me is that he knows them well. He knows their story. And he speaks of them, and he, he greets certain individuals, certainly maybe the ones he knows better, but he knows them, and he greets them in such a way that would recall probably so much more than that initial word on the surface means. He does the same with Rufus. He calls him elect in verse 13, drawing on that sweet doctrine of election taught earlier in the letter. I mean, he does He's not saying you're chosen where the rest are not. No, he's just varying it up. But, but perhaps, I don't know, maybe, maybe he knows that, that Rufus was greatly encouraged by that doctrine when he came to know it. Maybe it just opened up his eyes in a way that, he, that that just produced great growth. Or maybe, maybe Rufus struggled early on to believe that Christ would save a guy like him. Maybe he couldn't believe that Christ would save sinner like him. And, and he came to realize, no, Christ can pluck us up. Paul just reminds him, Rufus, chosen by God. Just powerful words. Finally, he speaks of three people in terms of their conversion. He understands their, their stories. Epinatus, he says was in verse 5, was his first convert in Asia. That's pretty cool. He's now in, in Rome, but he, you were the first fruits, is, is literally the word is. You were the first fruits, one, the first of many to come. But then he talks about Andronicus and Junia, who in verse 7 were in Christ before him. What a sweet reminder that God was before us working, and he is now working in us to save sinners. And every time we hear stories, we're reminded of these things, right? That's one of the reasons why we give testimony here. We want you to know people, know their story, so that you can give thanks to God for them. Brothers and sisters, do we have this type of affection toward one another? Could we go through, could you go through the member directory and begin saying, this is why I give thanks to them. Oh, I remember their conversion. They've come to Christ since I've been here. Oh, they've been in Christ long before I was. Oh, they're beloved. Oh, they're in Christ. Do we talk about one another like that? 
Do we greet one another like that? Not in a, uh, uh, an overly spiritual, haughty sense, but in a genuine way because we see each other with a proper perspective, a gospel perspective. Do we talk? There's my sister. There's my brother. There's my mother in the Lord. There's my father. Speaking of it in a sense that they're mentors, they're, they're fellow laborers. They've invested in me. I've seen the Lord has used them greatly. I have great tender affection for them. Do we share that tenderness? This is the work which God is doing in his church, brothers and sisters. In this church, he's calling a people to himself from every tribe, tongue, nation, and background. He's bringing them into one family, having purchased us by his precious blood for the praise of his glory. And it's my prayer that God's character and glory would be on display through the saints who gather in this local congregation, who gather at this church. And when we think and when we speak and interact with one another, that we would do so in a way worthy of the saints. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have purchased us, you have You've made us beloved in your Son. You have called us. You have chosen us. You have saved us. Lord, I pray right now that if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, Lord, that you would have opened their eyes, that you would call them, that you would stir their heart, that you would prick their conscience, and Lord, that you would overwhelm them with your Spirit and that they would confess you as Lord, that they would confess their sins and that they would put their trust in you, that they would flee the fleeting pleasures of sin that are destroying their soul. And Lord, that they would come to new life in Christ and join this sweet family that you have gathered together. And Lord, we ask that you would do that for those who aren't even here, those whom we have yet to share with, those who have yet to hear, even in our own city, Lord, that you would use this body of believers to demonstrate your love and to speak your good news. And Lord, that as we gather here Sunday after Sunday, oh, that we would worship you, that we would praise you for the great goodness that you have bestowed upon us, for the great redemption that you have wrought for us, and for the great hope that you have given us that one day we will be risen and we will see you face to face when the curse will be no more in a new heavens and a new earth. Lord, we long for that day. And we ask, Lord, that you come quickly. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. All right, church family, it's a fitting song. Church, arise, let's stand. And let's sing one more song as we go. <laughs>